from high atop Rocky Road in Moab, Utah, it's KZMU News. I'm Justin Higginbottom. This is your news for Friday, September 2nd. The Grand County Commission has approved using transient room tax funds to help support businesses impacted by the August 20th flood. That tax is levied against businesses like hotels, and the funds are usually earmarked for use in tourism marketing. Here's Commission Chair Jacques Hadler. The main concern is that taking money from this pool will diminish the much-needed much needed marketing efforts. So I wanted to make clear uh, the county has sufficient reserves to cover this relief grant program and marketing program scheduled to launch in September and continue until next summer. The grant money can be used for cleanup costs, renovations, or machinery and equipment replacement. Daniel Loveridge is the general manager of the Hoodoo Hotel in Moab. He was at the emergency commission meeting representing the Utah Tourism Industry Association. Loveridge says the association supports redirecting these funds as long as it's a one-time exception. Anybody who dealt with this flood knows the necessity of it. He also wanted to draw attention to the fact that there is a transient room tax fund balance at all. The association thinks these funds should be spent faster. I would like to also point out personally uh, in, in the proposal it points out how the economy has been down this year. It's my personal belief that the economy is down in part because we are not using the TRT funds where we should. We're holding on to them instead of advertising more effectively. That's had a direct impact on our, on our economy overall this year. $250,000 were approved for grants. Businesses can get up to $5,000 or up to 20% of the organization's damage, whichever is greater. The grants can't exceed $20,000. All local businesses impacted by the flood and that have little or no access to significant recovery resources are eligible. People have always feared the unknown, and that fear transforms some animals into monsters in our minds, like sharks in the ocean, or rattlesnakes in the West. The Mountain West News Bureau's Madeline Beck set out to learn more about those villainized snakes. Old Westerns often share one very similar bad guy. You're pretty good with that handgun, ain't you? That's from 1967 movie The Last Challenge. But the mythologizing of rattlesnakes hasn't gone away. Even the 2011 animated movie Rango made the rattlesnake the bad guy. All right, Sheriff, make your move. Some say movies are partially to blame for the rattlesnake's bad rap. Second only to the Bible, Hollywood has done more to damage the reputation of the humble snake than any other single factor on Earth. That's David Jensen, who owns Wasatch Snake Removal in Utah. His colleagues work around much of the state helping relocate snakes. He argues rattlesnakes aren't evil monsters. Evil's not a force found in nature. Okay. There are no evil animals or clouds or trees or plants or water or whatever. Uh, evil's a, a human construct. He notes that in Utah, it's generally illegal to kill any of the five species of rattlesnake there. Some other species are protected, like Wyoming's midget-faded rattlesnake and the New Mexico ridge-nosed rattlesnake, but not everyone follows the law. You even need a permit to move these venomous critters in many states, which is where organizations like Jensen's or wildlife officials come in to help. We remove the snake and return it safely back to habitat under a license from the Division of Wildlife Resources. However, you can kill rattlesnakes in Utah if you simply think they're a threat to your person or property. And that rule is the same across much of the Mountain West, from states like Montana and Nevada that hardly have any rattlesnake protections, to states like Colorado, which has its own snake hunting season. 
But how dangerous are these noisy snakes really? The actual threat to humans is extraordinarily low. The American Association of Poison Control Centers recorded about a thousand people who were bit by a rattlesnake last year. One of them died. That's a fairly typical year. Those numbers are nearly as low as U.S. shark fatalities. And the poison control centers say those who did die either didn't get antivenom in time or had an allergic reaction to the venom. However, you should still be wary. This summer, a six-year-old boy in Colorado died from a rattlesnake bite, and around 10% of those bit still faced life-threatening effects, including nerve damage and amputation. Out in the foothills in Boise, Idaho, Christina Parker and I are poking around bushes looking for rattlesnakes with help from a metal snake grabbing tool. Yeah, this is sneaky. (laughs) Got rocks, got shrubs. Parker is with the U.S. Geological Survey and has studied rattlesnakes. She says the species we'd most likely find in southern Idaho, the Great Basin rattlesnake, is pretty docile. It's one of her favorite snake species, partially because it is so persecuted and misunderstood, like so many other kinds of rattlesnakes. The snakes are more afraid of you than you are of them. Rattlesnakes are important to the ecosystem, eating vermin and cutting down on diseases they carry. Oftentimes, Parker says you can discourage them from coming into your yard just by making sure it isn't inviting to prey, like rodents, or doesn't have shady hiding spaces, like under a deck. However... If they do come into your yard, you can call wildlife officials to help move them. And if you do get bit... Don't tourniquet. Don't try sucking the venom out. Don't try any of those snake bite kits. Instead, make sure there isn't anything tight around the swelling bite area and clean it off with soap and water. Call 911. Then call poison control centers. Poison control knows a lot better on care for venom injection than a lot of medical doctors because a lot of medical doctors don't have snake bites that often. Beyond that, just stay as calm as possible and get to the hospital. And one last thing, that old saying about baby rattlers being more deadly because they can't control the amount of venom they inject? That is 100% a myth. Parker says rattlesnakes innately know how much venom to use. They need it to digest prey. And a baby snake bite may even be less of a threat because those little bodies have less venom. For the Mountain West News Bureau, I'm Madeline Beck. Food banks across the country are grappling with two major problems. Demand from customers is up and supplies are down. The Mountain West News Bureau's Will Walkie looks at the situation at one pantry in our region. And so everything comes in here and it's weighted. The shelves, pallets, and freezers at St. Joseph's Food Pantry in Cheyenne are looking pretty barren. Eva Astorga is showing me what she does have in stock. There's always breakfast, soups, fruits, vegetables, uh, pastas. Plus Cheerios, onions, peanut butter all donated from a vast network of grocery stores, individuals, and government programs. Astorga coordinates all of it with around 70 volunteers. The warehouse is the size of a soccer field and serves about 150 families a day. It's a way of caring for the community in a way that sometimes nobody else does. We get to put some kind of food on their table. But demand has skyrocketed, making her job more stressful. Several Wyoming pantries have seen their number of customers double since the pandemic began. 
Some who never needed food assistance before this summer are coming for the first time. The more people we have, of course, the more uh, food we need because we are giving out so much out and we're not getting as much in. St. Joseph's is a 100% drive-through operation. Today, cars line up around the block. Many customers in line share similar stories. The main reason was because of inflation and everything is so cost, you know, can't, can't afford it. And the price of meat's ridiculous. Um, I started coming here because I fell on hard times. It just helps me get from one paycheck to the next. It doesn't take that much for to run through 100 bucks worth of food stamps even. And having a place like this has just like been a lifesaver. Most people get basic staples in their boxes, canned goods, protein, and produce. But Astorga worries she'll have to cut back soon. The food bank buys things to fill in the gaps when donations aren't cutting it. In a normal month, they'd spend about 12 grand. In August, they spent over 20, but there's still not enough. Two weeks ago, Astorga spent $1,000 just on jelly. It was gone in four days. We can only buy so much, so people will be seeing less in their boxes. I don't think the end of the tunnel is closed. I think, I think it's going to be tough for a little while. Astorga's story is common in the region. Food banks in Nevada, Utah, and New Mexico also report being squeezed. Rachel Bailey heads the Food Bank of Wyoming, a major supplier for more than 150 partners statewide. So when we are traveling such long distances across the state um, to rural communities, those fuel prices and transportation costs like really add up. Inflation has a big impact on the bottom line. A truckload of sweet corn, for instance, cost Bailey just over $8,000 in 2021. Now, it's over 13000 But that's not the only thing limiting supplies. One of the biggest challenges that we have right now is a 52% decrease in the USDA's um, Emergency Food Assistance Program. The Emergency Food Assistance Program supplies pantries across the country. During the pandemic, it got a huge boost from federal COVID relief funds. But this summer, that money has run out at the worst time. The Agriculture Department had been providing about 40% of the Food Bank of Wyoming's supply. Now, it's down to 23%. I think that the public needs to have awareness that this is happening, that there are decreased donations and that there's increased need. Um, because what we really need from our communities right now is support. Bailey wants Congress to spend more on food aid next year. The USDA plans to ask for more money to adjust for inflation and supply chain problems. Back in line at St. Joseph's, construction worker Dominic Fonseca is in his turquoise pickup truck with his Pomeranian in the passenger seat. He's disabled and diabetic, and healthcare costs add up. So he comes here twice a month for a source of healthier meals. What I do with what I can eat since I'm diabetic is I, I pass it to friends and neighbors and family if they want it. Fonseca hopes that others in line, and especially those that don't visit food pantries, pass on what they can. For the Mountain West News Bureau, I'm Will Walkie in Cheyenne. And here's our weekly newsreel where we check in with reporters on their latest stories of the Moab area. Businesses are still scrambling to recover after historic flooding late last month and officials are scrambling for ways to help them pay for it. Damages from the flood are estimated to be around $10 million. With the fall tourist season approaching, businesses can't recover fast enough. Doug McMurdo from the Times Independent has more about new available grants. On Tuesday, in a special emergency meeting, the Grand County Commission 
in a 6-0 vote uh, approved using uh, transient room tax reserve funds uh, to set aside $250,000. The business community that was impacted by the Mill Creek flash flood on August 20th will be eligible to apply for grants. Up to $20,000 could be awarded, but I think $5,000 will be the the most that, that most businesses get that apply. The application period is going on now. It's going to go on until September 18th. And on September 19th, uh, this um, approval committee consisting of um, representatives from local government uh, and um, economic development and uh, the Tourism Advisory Council, City of Moab, and, of course, Grand County, they'll meet and they will um, basically decide who to approve and who not to approve. And their guidelines are pretty uh, pretty well spelled out. The uh, county economic development uh, department did a really good job preparing the county commission for this discussion. The county commission was um, very much in favor of, of doing this, but there was a little bit of pushback from the business community, not to uh, criticize this, they're firmly behind this, and so is the Utah Tourism Industry Association. However, there's been, I'm not sure you've heard the rumblings too, that the county isn't spending TRT money to promote um, Moab, which is what its main intent is. Right, and could you just explain what the transient room tax is? Transient room tax is just a, a, a rooftop tax or a room tax, whatever you want to call it, people, tourists pay it. Those who get the bed and breakfast, um, the Airbnbs, the hotels, the motels, private campgrounds, but not federal or state campgrounds. They don't they don't pay taxes there. But that's where that's where that it's generated by the industry for the most part. And I believe I'm not sure, but I think restaurants might also be included with the TRT tax. But don't hold my word to that. Uh, in any event, it's an it's an industry generated tax, and um, it is supposed to be per Utah law in almost all instances, used to market Moab. So that tourism tax goes back into promoting tourism. Correct. They swayed away from it a little bit with uh, these educational campaigns and the videos, you know, leave no trace, uh, respect the land, don't uh, don't bust the crust, all of those things, which I believe is a very good use of TRT tax funds. I think that, that, that this is too. Daniel Loveridge, he's the general manager of Hoodoo Moab, and um, he, he was speaking on behalf of himself and on behalf of um, the Tourism uh, Association. He was not speaking on behalf of his role uh, as a member of the Tourism Advisory Council. I want to make that clear. Uh, and and he, he was all for it, and so is the, the Tourism Association, as long as it's a one-time thing. And he urged the county commission to um, uh, outline what their intent is going forward on, on how to spend this TRT money. Do you know where else residents uh, and businesses will will be getting money? Well, if people have until Saturday to let the city and or county, wherever they live, know what kind of damage that they received and what they did to mitigate it and what costs that they incurred. And the more people who give them figures like that, the more money that FEMA will uh, return to the county to help people recover. I think uh, Ben Alter would be the person to talk to at Economic Development regarding uh, this front page story on, on the grant program. And I think this is a good way to help people recover. I know operating costs were one of the, the main things that, that they're dealing with because they're closed and they're afraid they're going to lose all their staff. So and keeping the lights on and all that stuff. So there's a lot of reason. There's a lot of need for it. It was a catastrophic event. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm still uh, very grateful that nobody died.
Yeah, we're very lucky. So, so yeah, if you were a business or resident and you were impacted by the flood, we'll include links in the show notes for you to, to reach out to local government there. And then speaking of um, us not losing any lives here during the flood, it seems like that's just by luck. Can you, can you tell me about your next story, which deals with this? Yeah, Sophia um, did an incredible amount of writing this week, and she just did a good job on every story. This one right here is a little bit of um, um, worrisome. Uh, City Councilor Ronnie DeRessery was talking about the flood uh, on August 20th and how she had no idea what it was. She was she got phone calls. She was walking uh, from her home to Main Street and she couldn't. She had to go back home and get uh, higher boots because the water was so high. Um, But what she didn't get was an emergency alert and neither did anybody else. Um, And the Grand County Sheriff's Office administers this alert. Uh, It's all a little bit of a mystery to me, but I'm not sure how it's supposed to work. All I do know is that it didn't work. And um, I don't know if there was even time for it to work. You know, flash floods are flash floods, and they're called that for a reason. But I think that there's a universal consensus that the system failed. And I, I don't know what the fix is, but I'm quite sure that the, the sheriff's office is diligently looking into it to find out um, uh, what that problem is and how they're going to fix it. And hopefully they'll let us know when uh, when they arrive at that decision. And it seems like, especially with with your coverage on the issue, this it's getting a lot of play and local officials are, are taking it pretty seriously. Yeah. You know, and I can't I keep thinking um, I get alerted every time. Uh, I, I get amber alerts. I get silver alerts. I get National Weather Service alerts. Should be pointed out that the National Weather Service didn't point, uh, didn't let us know there was going to be flooding until an hour after the worst of the flooding had occurred. So, so they kind of fell too. I think that's the problem of having uh, our, the closest station in Grand Junction. They really don't have anybody on the ground to to see what's going on. But I did not get an, an alert. So when I got up Sunday. I have a tradition, me and my dog enjoy eggs and bacon on Sunday morning. <laughs> um, I started looking at my phone and it was just blowing up with text. And so I um, uh, brushed my teeth and ran down to the office. And of course, we were flooded out full of mud and um, I had to deal with that crisis. And then I had to start covering the flood. And I was just like, I was just amazed because I actually walked home Saturday night in a light rain. I, I, was, I was damp when I got home, but I wasn't soaked. Yeah, yeah, it was it was unexpected, especially because it was raining much harder the weekend before, yeah. and so people didn't expect. It. And that with that national um, weather weather alert, I know up the creek uh, campground, that alert came through for them basically as they had already um, rescued their campers, pulled people from tents, r- really saved people's lives. They that almost got washed away. Yeah, those two girls that went to bed early because they had an early hike. They they went from uh, ankle high to waist high in a matter of moments, just that quick. Yeah. So I think. Um, so yeah, this is a good thing that local officials will be will be hopefully figuring out an emergency alert system that that works in a timely manner. And what what else do you have on the front page here? Well, this is a kind of a, a cool story as we were discussing. Uh, before we we went on air, local government and their um, propensity to to think outside the box. Uh, This alternative dwelling idea is pretty radical. It would allow landowners to put um, RVs, tiny homes, camper vans, uh, alternate dwellings, Um, because as you know, you can't even get a permit to put a, a you know, to hook up an, an RV on, on, a, on a lot of land if you had it. And I, I think that they could do this and um, 
employees could buy RVs. Um, I don't know if I want to live in a camper van. I think I'm a little too old for that lifestyle. Unfortunately, I think it'd be kind of cool for about two and a half weeks. Uh, a tiny home, an RV, those are alternative dwellings, but, but they're livable. You, you can live well in, in one of those as long as you don't need a lot of space. And I think it's a, it would be a good idea. There's a little bit of controversy. Trish Hadeen, she's a Grand County Commissioner who serves as a liaison to the Grand County Planning Commission. Um, she says that she's getting um, some negative feedback. But she was the only one who had that comment. Everybody else has heard a lot of supportive things. There was a little, um, I don't want to say a tiff or overblow it, but there was a, a firm discussion between Emily Campbell, the chair of the Planning Commission, and, and Trish. But at the end of the day, they they voted unanimously to uh, recommend approval when the uh, Grand County Commission tackles that issue on uh, uh, September 20th. Excellent. And, and this would carve out a space where you might have a, a tiny home an RV park next to a tiny home, and it would be a mixture of these different alternative dwellings. Right. And, and another important thing, there are a lot of um, illegal, seems harsh, maybe um, non-approved RVs hooked up all over Spanish Valley. And the water board, they haven't really enforced anything because it's out of compassion, because housing is so hard. But if this is approved, that would give them leverage to um, get everybody else that's doing it illegally or unlawfully uh, into compliance. Not necessarily spank them or fine them or anything, but make sure that they're doing everything right, making sure that their uh, sewage is going into the sewer and uh, or the septic or wherever it goes, and um, that they're getting clean water and you know it's habitable. Yeah, that's that would be great. Other than just bringing people into compliance, do they have an idea of where an area might be set up to have this? I think any uh, any homeowner who has the land would be eligible, and I think it could be all over town. Um, I imagine that NIMBYism will be strong with this one, and um, it always is. But it's, like I said earlier, it's, a, it's thinking outside the box. It's government doing something that governments don't typically do, and they're doing it obviously for the benefit of the community you know, relieve some of that pressure. And you're starting your election coverage. We are. We started our election coverage. We'll have weekly uh, candidate stories um, uh, until a couple weeks before the election, and then we'll cut off everything, no letters to the editor, uh, nothing like that. So because people want to won't have a chance to respond the week before the election. Okay. So I'll cut off that. Um, but we're going to uh, interview everybody um, who gives us an interview, and hopefully uh, voters will have a pretty good idea of uh, what the candidates represent and uh, who they are, and um, it should be an interesting election. I think it will be. Can you talk about your first two interviews here? Yes, we uh, interviewed um, uh, Grand County Attorney Christina Sloan and her challenger, Stephen Stocks. Uh, they challenged each other uh, also in 2018, and uh, they're they're having the uh, the rematch this year. And um, I think voters um, got to be very careful. I don't voice an opinion here. I think voters have um, two very distinct candidates to to uh, choose from. And do you remember was that a close race in 2018? Um, I think Christina won it pretty handily. Okay, thank you very much, Doug. See you, man. <laughs> Doug McMurdo, editor at the Times Independent. Subscription info and more stories can be found at moabtimes.com. William Grandstaff ranks high among the most interesting characters to once inhabit Moab. The 19th century black cowboy ran cattle in what locals now know as Grandstaff Canyon, 
A new exhibit at the Moab Museum displays a timeline of Grand Staff's fascinating life. Allison Hartford of the Moab Sun News has more. On September 1st, this exhibit opened. And so for years, the Moab Museum has been researching and asking this question of who was William Grandstaff, the black frontiersman who once called Moab home in the 1870s. Um, and so this new exhibit pulls together all of the research that the museum has done and also research completed by um, a genealogist, Nick Sheedy, and composer Gerald, Gerald Elias. Um, and so this new exhibit exhibit displays all of this information through a cohesive timeline of Grandstaff's life. And do you know about anything that might be surprising to residents of Moab about Grandstaff, even if we might have heard the name and know the trailhead and things? What, what will people take away from that exhibit? Yeah, so I think the biggest thing about the exhibit is that there's a lack of artifacts. And so um, the exhibit pulls together this timeline by drawing visual connections between documents with red and blue ribbon. And the documents really show how black Americans before emancipation were treated as property and the historical records for black Americans are really scant. And so the earliest possible record of William Grandstaff is a record of people held in slavery by George Grandstaff, who was a white man in Virginia. Um, and that record notes two black boys aged 12 and 16. And William Grandstaff was likely one of those boys, but we don't know for sure. And his life is harder to trace after that. Um, there are a bunch of different William Grandstaff or Drandstaff or Grandstaff with three A's or Grandsdorf. Um, and these people are all over the place. And researchers believe that all of those um, census records are William Grandstaff. But it's really hard to track actually where he was and what he was doing. Um, and so he arrived in Moab in the late 1870s, where he reportedly ran cattle in what is now Grandstaff Canyon. Um, and he left again in 1881. And then he appeared to move to Colorado, marry and pick up work as a miner. And then he died in 1901. Great. Yeah, he had an extremely interesting life in this corner of the country, which was very difficult to live in back then. Um, but also, I guess it sheds light on the number of, of black cowboys in the West during that time, which we don't get a sense of seeing old Westerns um, and such. But but they were out there. There's a sizable group of, of black cowboys here in this area. Right, exactly. Yeah, Mary Langworthy, who's the museum's community relations manager, said that um, she really wanted to use this exhibit to put Grandstaff's life in context. And so we have this idea of what a cowboy looks like or a frontiersman or pioneer, and Grandstaff's history really disrupts that. And so um, research has found that one in four cowboys in the American West were black. And so along with the timeline of Grandstaff's life, this exhibit provides examples of further reading um, and also provides a couple artifacts that were used in that time. And so what, what else do you have this week, Allie? The other day, I was poking around on the Utah Division of Wildlife Resources website um, trying to find some data about plants, but I came across this desert tortoise adoption program. Um, and so this is not a symbolic adoption, um, kind of like how you can adopt a whale and then you get, you know, like a certificate or something. This is literally you can adopt a living tortoise and keep it in your backyard. Wow. And, w and what is that like having a tortoise as a pet? Once you become a tortoise caretaker, um, you have to care for this tortoise until one of you 
outlives the other. Um, and so the desert tortoise is a federally threatened species. So each year, the Utah Division of Wildlife Resources comes into possession of tortoises that cannot be released back into the wild. So these are tortoises that were injured or illegally captured and brought up in, ca in captivity. Um, and because they're a threatened species, they're protected under the Endangered Species Act, so they can't easily be transported out of the state. Um, and so... The state has to find permanent homes for these animals, which right now are with Utah citizens. And so currently there are 17 tortoises available for adoption. And then how long do tortoises live? Yeah, tortoises can live over 50 years. Um, so I talked to Joey Mugliston, who runs the Desert Tortoise Adoption Program, and he said the program, the program has dealt with situations where the tortoise has outlived its caretaker. Wow. And how big do they get? They get pretty big. Um, they get, you know, like a couple feet. Um, and they are pretty quirky. So they have, there's this big booklet of what to do, you know, when you adopt a tortoise. Um, and they require a large fenced yard um, that's at least 150 square feet and yards must be escape proof and relatively flat. I think this is so cute but tortoises are really curious creatures that attempt to climb over things that get in their way um, and they love kind of going around the perimeter of their yards and so if there's anything that they can climb over they might have like a tip over liability and so if they tip over onto their backs it can be fatal oh, and so no. you have to escape proof your yard because they'll try to dig out or climb out and yeah it has to be flat so that they don't tip over and they also need access to burrows so that they can hide from the heat and bad weather so i asked joey about moab as a place especially because it's so hot here and he said moab is actually great um you can adopt a tortoise anywhere in the state and they don't mind the heat because they just go into their burrows um, and they can hide. And then the tortoises do need access to sunlight so to promote good shell growth. And then they need access to water provided in a large shallow dish because the tortoises hydrate themselves by just climbing in and out of this dish and soaking themselves in the water. <laughs> Excellent. And what else do you have this week? So I talked to Allison Anders, who's the development associate at the Kenyanlands Field Institute, because they've been doing a lot more of these community events um, that prioritize mental health. Great. And, and what do those include? So in late July, um, CFI held a mental health in the mountains hike um, where Moab residents were invited to join CFI and a guest expert for a free guided afternoon in the mountains. Participants hiked, journaled, and did art together. And then in early August, CFI partnered with the U.S. Forest Service to host another free weekend of trail work and camping and hiking. Um, and so now there are a couple more events planned throughout the year. So the next event is a queer camp out on September 10th to the 11th and it's meant to provide a space for Moab's LGBTQIA plus community um, and CFI is partnering with CKVIN to host the camp out. Excellent that sounds super fun and what, what else is coming up for them? Two of their annual events are coming up. This is the Moab Daily Cleanup on September 25th um, and an archaeological service day on October 1st. So CFI is partnering with the BLM for both events. Um, during the Daily Cleanup, participants will float the entirety of the Moab Daily and pick up trash along the way. And during the archaeological day, participants will build fences and remove social trails near an archaeological site. Um, and so I asked Allison about 
you know, why they're doing more of these events. And she said she really wanted to create a space for community members to um, meet other people and get outside and build community and really build a sense of place here. And she said that was something that she was missing when she moved to Moab about two years ago. And doing these kind of guided hikes through CFI just provides people a space to really like learn about and prioritize their mental health. And also it's just they're really cool like educational and stewardship aspects to um, these hikes. So like with the queer camp out, there will also be stargazing from Moab Astronomy Tours. And then obviously with the cleanup days, um, the BLM will be there. And so these are really just places to learn more about our landscape. Awesome. Yeah, that's a great opportunity to not only get outside, but meet other people. I've done the CFI float and that was really fun. It was really cool, not only just picking up trash for the community, but you get a free float down the river, which mm-hmm. was really fun. Right. Yeah. And um, Allison also said that, you know, CFI provides a lot of opportunities for people who don't live in Moab um, through all of their other programming, but she really wanted to um, prioritize Moabites as well. Well, thank you so much, Allie. Allison Hartford, staff reporter at the Moab Sun News. Subscription info and more stories can be found at moabsunnews.com. That's it for the weekly newsreel where we check in with reporters on their latest stories of the Moab area. Find the pieces mentioned today in the show notes at our website kzmu.org or wherever you listen to the KZMU News Podcast. As always, thanks for tuning in and supporting KZMU Community Powered Radio.